This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Later in the show, I'll be joined by the brilliant Ash Sarkar. And um, for now, I'll tell you what we've got coming up. Joe Biden thinks we shouldn't accept the official Gaza death toll. I explain why I think he's got that one wrong. Um, Keir Starmer may not be calling for a ceasefire, but other prominent Labour politicians have come out calling for one. And we discuss the hypocrisy of the US government on civilian casualties in Palestine and in Ukraine. They take a very different tone, tell a very different story in those two places. Why might that be? Stay tuned for all of that. First, though, and we'll be looking at the heartbreaking story of someone who has just lost many relatives to Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. Let's get straight into our first story. On most of our recent shows, we've read out the latest number of victims of the war on Gaza. It's an important thing to do. The scale of death and suffering in this bombardment is vast. But beyond the numbers of casualties of war, there are people. People who had hopes and dreams, who've left behind friends and family. And earlier today, I spoke to one of those people who've been left behind. Ahmed Al-Nayouk is director of We Are Not Numbers, which is a youth-led Palestinian non-profit project in the Gaza Strip. Ahmed is based in London at the moment, but has already lost 20 family members in this latest round of Israel's war. They include his father, three sisters, two brothers and their children. And I started by asking Ahmed how he learnt about his dreadful news. I went to bed at 2 a.m. and usually when I go to bed, I would have deep sleep, to be honest. That's my my, uh, everyday routine. But at that time, uh, during that night, I woke up suddenly at 4.30 in the, in the morning. And uh, I had heartbeat and I had panic for some reason I did not know. And then uh, in my heart, I feel that something is wrong. So I checked my phone and then I uh, found out that many of my friends are sending me messages on WhatsApp and then deleting these messages. And this moment... I feel that something is terrible happening. So I called one of my friends, and he's from Dalibalah, and uh, I told him, um, I asked him, why, why did you delete the messages? What's wrong? Tell me. And he said, he, he asked if I heard the news or not, and I told him, no, I haven't. And he hesitated for a moment. So I told him, hit me, tell me what's going on. And he told me, the Israelis bombed your home and uh, a number of your family members are killed. So at that point, I was shocked. I was shocked because I knew how many people are living in my in my house. There was my father, my two brothers. One of them is married with the children, with the three children. There was uh, three sisters who are married, but they uh, sought refuge to my home with all of their children. One of my sisters has five children. The other has four children. The other has three children. And then uh, the, there was my cousin who also uh, came for my house for shelter. And the last time I knew that also my uncle came from Gaza, which is in the north of the Gaza Strip, to come and seek refuge in uh, our home, him and all of his family. So there was about more than 50 or 60 people living in my home. So I was shocked. I was terrified. And I panicked. And then I, 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 I did not know what to do. I did not want to wake my uh, my flatmates. 
uh, I closed the light and I I started crying. My deepest condolences to you, Ahmed. I mean, that's just a, a, an unimaginably you know horrific ex- experience. Um, and I suppose to sort of talk about this um, in in more depth, you've you've been sharing lots of videos and and and, and um, pictures. Um, on your Twitter over the past few days, I mean, it's been getting lots of traction, of course, because of you know how how, how extremely horrific this this story is. Um, and I want to show some of them now to sort of get your your comments, your your, your sort of explanation of, of what our audience are are seeing. So you shared this video um, on on Twitter yesterday. Of course, it wasn't taken by you, but shared by you. Um, and and you tweeted, "This is where my house once stood. This is where my parents prepared my flat to start my own happy family." This is where all my memories shaped and where I spent my childhood. This is also where I lost over 20 of my family. Nine are still under rubble, six days after math. Can you tell me where was that building? And also, I suppose, have the Israelis given any explanation as to why they decided to to bomb that building with an airstrike? Was it just happen and there's no no explanation given whatsoever? Well, my uh, my family house is in Dir al-Balah. Dir al-Balah is in the uh, middle area of the Gaza Strip, but it's south of the Wadi Gaza. It is in the uh, allocated area where uh, the Israelis asked people who uh, live in the north of the Gaza Strip to come to. So uh, my home was, uh, we thought that our home is safe, but uh, it wasn't. And let me clarify something. So my uncle came from Gaza, which is in the north, to live with my family because he thought that our home will be uh, will be okay. And also one of my sister came with her children to, live, to stay with my family because they thought that this is uh, one of the safest areas in uh, in the Gaza Strip. And by the way, Sharon, the prime minister, Israeli prime minister, used to call Dar al-Balah uh, Dar al-Salam, which is uh, the, the city of peace because it was has always been peaceful. So we never thought that my home would be a target because... We don't have any military target in Gaza, in, in our home. We don't have any militant. There is no justification whatsoever for the Israelis to kill my family. So I was very happy then after I uh, I heard the news that my uncle and my sister left our home because after they saw that the Israelis are killing all the, uh, the Palestinians who are coming from the north to the south, they left my home. So that's why the number of the, the casualties in my home was 20, 20 killed, of course. But if my uncle and my sister did not leave, it would have been a catastrophe, actually, because the number of, of, of killed would already be uh, over 50, 50 people. So there is no justification whatsoever. 13 children were killed in my home. When I say children, I'm not talking about 17 and 18 and 16 years old. I'm talking about children aging from 1 and to 13 years old. It's a massacre. And the three of my sisters and my father, who is 75 years old, there is no justification whatsoever for the Israelis to bomb my home. And not only my home. Listen, uh, uh, we're talking about over 700 families that Israel wiped out from the face of earth. These families are not military targets. They should never be military targets. But the Israelis made it clear by their uh, by their Ministry of Defense. They said that now they are focusing on the damage. They're focusing on the damage, not the accuracy, not the precision. So the Israelis, we know, and you know, and everyone knows that the Israelis are targeting us, not because we are targeting not because we are posing any threat to the Israelis, but because they want to make us feel pain, because they want to kill us, just to kill us. There's no justification whatsoever for killing 13 children while they are sleeping in their bed. 
As you say, this was the part of, of Gaza which the Israeli government has told people to flee to, and still this catastrophe, this disaster, this tragedy can can happen. I want to talk about some of the people you, you've lost because you've been sharing photographs again on, on your Twitter about family members um, that have been tragically killed. Um, I wanted to show some of those photos and get you to talk about them um, for, our, for our audience. So, so this is your father, Nasri. He was 75 um, when he was killed. Can you tell our audience um, about your, your father, Nasri? My father is one of the most compassionate people I ever know in my life. He was born in 1948, the year of the Nakba. He was killed one week ago in the second Nakba. My father was very merciful. He was very kind. He was one of the most talented people I know. He has a photographic memory. He's very intelligent. He's very kind. He's very lovely. He was loved by everyone. Everyone. And he never harmed an Israeli. He never belonged to any political faction. He was a construction builder. And by the way, my father in the, 60, in the 70s and 80s, he was forced to, with all of the Gaza Strip, to work in Israel. So he built houses in Israel. And this is how they reward him by killing him, killing his children and his grandchildren and everyone. And by the way, this is not the first time. Two years ago, Israel also killed my mother, but it wasn't a, a direct killing. They prevented her from receiving medicine and uh, from uh, traveling outside Gaza to, to receive a treatment for, for her, uh, her cancer. So this is how we are re being rewarded. This is how the Israelis are dealing, are dealing with, with the Palestinian. My father is the kindest person I know. He has never yelled at me has never shouted at me. He never beat me. He was always very loving, very caring. He used to work day and night, literally day and night, in order to provide for us the essentials. He was very loved from everyone, from everyone. My condolences to you. He sounds like a, a wonderful man. I want to bring up another photo of you that you, you've shared. This is with um, two of your nieces, Basema and Dima, and your nephew, Bakir. Now, they have all been killed in Israeli airstrikes. And this is a picture of you with them. Could you tell us when this photo was taken? And can you tell us about um, your two nieces and nephew here? I think this photo was taken five years ago when I was in Gaza. So Dima, the one in the top, is uh, my niece. She's uh, the daughter of my sister, Ala. She was also very kind, very lovely, very intelligent, very kind. There was Bakir. Bakir is my nephew. He's the son of my brother, Muhammad. I don't know what to say. They were children. And Basima is the, the sister of Bakr. They were both siblings. And I used to love them so much. I used to love them so, so much. I used to spend all, you know, because my family house is a big building and it has four flats, one for me, one flat was for me, I, that my parents had prepared it for me uh, to have a family. And then my father's flat and then my brother's flat on the third floor. And then they would, Bakr and Basima would always be in our flat in, with my father, with me. So we spent all the time together. They spent their childhood with me. We're very connected to each other. And they felt like my children. My nephews and my nieces were like my children. And I just can't understand the justification for killing these children. These are children. They were kids. My condolences. It's difficult to know what to to say in this in this situation, and I thank you again for sort of coming here and, and speaking uh, about such a difficult issue on what must be you know such a difficult moment. One more um, thing that you shared um, on on Twitter today, and this is about your brother Mahmoud, and I found this especially powerful. So it's it's the last thing he posted on LinkedIn before being killed. 
Um, so he, he wrote on LinkedIn, this could be my last post on LinkedIn as Israel will soon cut off internet in preparation for our genocide and forced expulsion. This comes with full support of the free world who is cheering Israel on. The world has lost its last sliver of humanity. It is everyone's duty to speak out about this. Do not let Israel murder us. Now, knowing what we know now, that's an incredibly chilling message. Um, I mean, what, what do you think our audience should should take away from that message from 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 your brother? And can you talk about him as well? My brother Mahmoud is the the youngest sibling of the family. He's 25 years old, and he studied English literature as his first degree. And then he always told me that I am his role model. He wanted to be like me. He wanted to be a journalist like me. He studied English literature because I studied English literature. He thought I'm a successful person and he wanted to be like me. And then he worked at a human rights organization, the same organization I used to work at. And then he moved to another job uh, in a think tank organization in Gaza. He was a translator. He was uh, he did some kind uh, some sort of journalism back in his days, and then recently uh, a few months ago he called me and he was thrilled. He was over the moon. He told me, Ahmed, finally I got a scholarship to study my masters in Australia. He wanted to study international relations, but this was faster than than his travel he was very happy that he wanted to travel and by the way he traveled for the first time only two months ago he went to malaysia for a course in fundraising and he was very happy he always used to share his photos uh, in our uh, family uh, whatsapp uh, chat he was very happy because at the age of 25 it was the first time that he travels outside of gaza he was very happy he was very ambitious he was very hard working he was very 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 kind he was my 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 second hand in Gaza. So everything I wanted to do or I need in Gaza, he would do it for me. He wanted to be like me. He wanted to be like me. And then Israel killed him. And this post, he said it in capital letters, please do not let Israel murder us. And then a few days after that, Israel murdered him, not only him, but his father, his brothers, his sisters, his nieces and his nephews. And I wanted to share this post because I want to let the world see the last messages of, of the victims who live in Gaza. The victims in Gaza wanted the world to look at them, to hear their stories, to hear their voice, and to know what they're, be, what they're going through. And unfortunately, the world has let Israel murder him. Unfortunately, as he said, the free world, the Western countries are supporting Israel, giving Israel money and missiles and weaponry in order to kill the civilian population of the Gaza Strip. I think this is one of the, the most heartbreaking posts I've ever seen, especially when it comes from my dear brother, my youngest brother, Mahmoud. It's chilling, it's, it's heartbreaking reading that message, knowing what happened next. And I, of course, I can only imagine um, that that will be only more so for, for you. I wanted to end by um, showing one more message from you, and this is more about you know your actions, how you're feeling. And so you've said, just to be clear, now I am grieving my family by posting about them, but soon this period of grief will end, and then I will legally pursue everyone complicit in this massacre against my family. By everyone, I mean everyone. What did you mean by that? What could that What could that entail? How are you um, planning to to go forward with this after you sort of move beyond? 
and what I can only imagine is, is, is devastating grief. It is devastating grief, especially because I'm not in Gaza. I'm not around them. I'm not, uh, uh, I wasn't able to see them, kiss them goodbye and look at my home for the first time. And by the way, my home has my flat. So if I were in Gaza, I would have been also killed like, like, like my family. So I'm, I'm in a huge grief right now. I'm grieving. And the only thing I can do while grieving is posting about my family, uh, telling the stories of my family to the world and sharing their narrative, their words, their pictures, their, their, their life. So this is what I, what, what I do during my grief time. But then I will never be silenced. I will never be silenced. I will, I will use every, every legal, every legal possible way to pursue those who were complicit against, uh, complicit in these war crimes against my family and also the other Palestinian population. I haven't decided yet what I'm going to do, but I'm going to pursue everyone legally in terms of the politicians who supported Israel the Israeli politicians, the media who provided the cover for the Israelis to commit its war crimes against the Palestinians. And I believe that media has played a very significant role in this in this war against the Palestinian people. So I'm not going to be silenced. I'm not going to be silenced. I'm going to do everything I could in order to bring uh, justice to the victims of my family and other Palestinian fam families. And we're still... I think in the beginning of this of this offensive on the Gaza Strip, and many many more families will uh, will lose their lives. I want to end by something. Please. So, do you remember when I uh, when I said that one of my uncles who lived in Gaza came to my home to seek refuge in our home, and then only two days before my home was bombed, he did not feel safe in Deir al-Balah anymore, so he returned to Gaza. Well, now just before I came to this interview. I heard in the news that Israel also bombed his house. They bombed his house, and there are over 30 people killed in his house. Until now, they couldn't recognize who were killed, but they're saying that it was a massacre. My friends who live there said it's a massacre, and they couldn't recognize the casualties because they are in body parts. So there's nowhere safe in Gaza, and it is now up to the world to stand and not and not stand idly by while watching the Palestinian people and civilians being massacred in the broad daylight. That was Ahmed Al Nayuk speaking to me earlier this afternoon. And just to, I suppose, say again, you know, uh, thank you to Ahmed for for the bravery of, of coming on to talk here about such a horrific experience that I cannot imagine going through. I'm sure you all, I mean, the audience will appreciate the the time um, and, and and bravery that went into that. Um, and I do really think that was a, an important interview that I would sort of encourage you to to show to people who are not sure whether or not we should have a ceasefire, right? Because hearing what people are actually experiencing, right? And Ahmad is not alone. There are lots of people in this situation. I just think it's so important for people to hear that. And my condolences to to, to Ahmed. And yeah, just I, I just want to say thank you to to Ahmed for that for that interview. Um, I also want to point you to um, the website that Ahmed founded. Now, it's called We Are Not Numbers. It tells the story of Palestinians in their own words and was launched in 2014 when Ahmed wrote about another loss he experienced, that of his 23-year-old brother who was killed by an Israeli missile during their 2014 bombardment of Gaza. So a sort of horrible full circle there. He starts this website when his brother is killed in 2014. And now on that same website, he's talking about the Israelis killing 20 more of his family members. So just completely 
completely horrific. And again, uh, thank you so much to, to Ahmed for, for speaking so bravely to us. Um, I'm joined now by Ash Sarkar. Ash, I mean, what can you say about that interview? Um, I was just totally stunned, um, I suppose, by the composure in the face of what must be completely devastating grief. I mean, those of us who've lost family members before, I don't think any of us could imagine what it would be like to have your family home, dozens of members of your family just obliterated in a single day. And not only that, not only to experience such a tremendous loss of life in one go, to see the political and journalistic classes either excusing it, minimizing it, talking about how Hamas used human shields, how this is proportionate, this is Israel's right to self-defense, or in some cases actively cheering it on, I can only imagine what that might do to a person psychologically. So for someone to sit down for, what, a 15-minute interview, sharing their experiences, sharing the lives of their family members who they've just so recently lost, it's a it's a form of strength and resilience, which um, I guess is extremely commendable. I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine being able to do that. Yeah, I mean, being in that situation in the first place, let alone then being able to sort of, I mean, I, I do recommend also following Ahmed on, on, on Twitter. And we'll put the link to both his, his Twitter profile and that website in the description because he's been tweeting, um, you know, lots of stories about the family that he's lost. Very, very powerful. We're going to move on to our next story, which is actually very much related. We are going back to the issue of the numbers. According to the Gazan Ministry of Health, 7,326 people have so far been killed since Israel began its assault on Gaza. Over 3,000 of them are children. But as those numbers pile up, the West has a new strategy. Cast doubt on them. Joe Biden was asked about the Gazan death toll at a recent press conference. If I may very quickly, in the 18 days since Hamas, Hamas killed 1,400 Israelis, the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry says Israeli forces have killed over 6,000 Palestinians, including 2,700 children. You've previously asked Netanyahu to minimize civilian casualties. Do these numbers say to you that he is ignoring that message? What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. It was quite a big claim, and a journalist asked a spokesperson from Biden's National Security Council um, to, to back them up. The president yesterday, John, said he has no confidence in the death toll numbers presented by the Palestinians in Gaza. What's he basing that on? How did he reach the conclusion? Well, we all know that the Gazan Ministry of Health is just a, a, a front for Hamas. It's, a, it's run by Hamas, a terrorist organization. Um, I've said it myself up here. We can't take anything coming out of Hamas including the so-called Ministry of Health, at face value. So-called Ministry of Health is just such a horrific way to talk about a health system which is collapsing under, under bombardment, right? 
Um, and as you saw there, Joe Biden made quite a big claim. We can't trust what Gazan officials tell us about any death counts. But his spokesperson there asked, what's your justification for saying this? He couldn't back it up at all beyond saying, Hamas are terrorists, these guys are bad. Right? That's, that's the evidence. That's all the evidence they have for casting these aspersions. Now, what do I think about this? Well, on the one hand, I do think it's important and, and, and fair to say that we shouldn't take as gospel the claims made by either side in a war. I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't think it should be taboo to say um, it's in the interests of Hamas to deflate the Gazan or to inflate, sorry, the Gazan death toll. But if we do that, we should be consistent because exactly the same incentives would apply to Israel. It's also in their interest to inflate their death toll and deflate the Gazan death toll. Yet Biden isn't showing much skepticism to the claims Israel are making. Remember this. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. I never thought I'd ever, anyway. Joe Biden's team had to confirm after that speech that Biden had not, in fact, seen photos of beheaded babies and was instead making that claim purely based on Israeli media reports. So we have inconsistency in how Biden treats information from both sides. But what do we know about the nature of the death counts provided by the Gazan Ministry of Health? Now, this is from a report from the Associated Press. The ministry is the only official source for Gaza casualties. Israel has sealed Gaza's borders, barring foreign journalists and humanitarian workers. The AP is among a small number of international news organizations with teams in Gaza. While those journalists cannot do a comprehensive count, they viewed large numbers of bodies at the sites of airstrikes, morgues and funerals. The United Nations and other international institutions and experts, as well as Palestinian authorities in the West Bank, rivals of Hamas, say the Gaza ministry has long made a good faith effort to account for the dead under the most difficult conditions. We've also got a quote from Michael Ryan of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program. So he said this, The numbers may not be perfectly accurate on a minute-to-minute basis, but they largely reflect the level of death and injury. And the Associated Press also said that in previous wars, the ministry's counts have held up to UN scrutiny, independent investigations, and even Israel's tallies. So the Gazan Health Ministry, despite being overseen by evil terrorists, has a record of being accurate on this front. And Human Rights Watch have also given an interesting opinion on this topic. Their director for Israel and Palestine said, we have been monitoring human rights abuses in the Gaza Strip for three decades, including several rounds of hostilities. We've generally found the data that comes out of the Ministry of Health to be reliable. When we have done our own independent investigations around particular strikes, and we've compared those figures against those from the health ministry, there haven't been major deviations. Their numbers generally are consistent with what we're seeing on the ground in recent days. There have been hundreds of airstrikes per day in one of the most densely populated areas of the world. We've looked at satellite imagery. We've seen the number of buildings and the numbers that are coming out are in line with what we would expect with what we're seeing on the ground. So you put all those things together and we're quite confident in the overall casualty numbers. So the record of the Gaza Health Ministry, which is staffed by doctors, not politicians, by the way, it's not just a front organization, and their record has historically been strong. So normally, when they say a number, it turns out that other investigations agree with that. Also, the number of casualties they cite is in line with what we can independently verify, namely the number of buildings that have been flattened. 
But that hasn't stopped Western pundits running with the smear. Philip Ingram is a former British intelligence officer, now military analyst. The Gaza Ministry of Health has turned around and said that there's 640, sorry, 6,546 people have died. 62% are women or children. Mm-hmm. Now, that Gaza Ministry of Health is Hamas. Mm-hmm. They are, it's in their interest to exaggerate the numbers and exaggerate the numbers quite a lot. But we find the international aid agencies are quoting those figures as if they were you know, gospel truth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it suits international aid agencies to have large numbers because that means that people will donate more money to them. Yeah. So we just have to take all the figures that have came out with a pinch of salt. We do, but I mean, huge numbers are still dying, right? We, but it's just, you, you, you think that they may well be inflated. I think, I think they'll be inflated by quite a lot. There are, there are civilians dying in this because Hamas are using them as, as human shields in many ways. And you know, that, that's you know, absolutely horrible. I do know that the Israelis are taking you know, every care they can to try and reduce those numbers because they know that this is not good for them politically on the international stage. It was just lie after lie after lie, wasn't it? This idea, well, one, he's just saying it's just a front for Hamas. Now, it's not. I mean, anyone who's written about this, you can read this in the AP, Reuters, Guardian. What they say is that actually the Gazan Health Ministry, yes, it does fall under Hamas control because they are in control of the Strip, but also it has many bureaucrats who were there when Fatah were in control of, of Gaza. And it's often you know, in touch with the UN and various international agencies. And by the way, Gaza does have a hospital system that actually needs to work, right? So so uh, this is a, an organization which governs a region. It's not just making up numbers willy-nilly because it doesn't just do propaganda, right? And then to just say, oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure some people have been killed, but that's probably just because they're human shields. I mean, we started this program speaking to someone who has had 20 of their family members killed in a building which was outside the zone which Israel told people to evacuate a family home, and now 20 of them are dead, right? Is he saying, oh, they were just human shields? That's Hamas's fault. And we were told that there is no military target there, right? They weren't human shields. They were innocent civilians who were bombed by one of the most powerful militaries in the world, right? I just found that whole analysis there on Sky News just quite sickening, I have to say. To try and counter um, their Western doubters, the Gazan Health Ministry has now gone even further than in previous wars. Officials have released the names of 6,747 people they say were killed in Israeli strikes. The detailed list includes ages, genders, and ID numbers. And that's a lot more information than we've been provided about the 1,400 people Israel says were killed in the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October. So far, the names of 902 victims have been provided. Again, that doesn't mean only 902 people were killed, but I think it's important we're consistent here. I do worry when sort of people say it should be absolute taboo to question the numbers on either side. I mean, I know I've been questioning lots of of what the IDF has had to say over the past few weeks, but it does seem to me that, you know, from presidents to pundits on television, Palestinians are being forced to meet a much higher burden of proof than the Israelis when it comes to people being killed. I mean, they absolutely are. And as you pointed out, this mistrust of the numbers that are coming out out of the Gazan Ministry of Health, that's something that's relatively new. In previous assaults on Gaza, Operation Cast Lead, what you saw in 2021, you haven't had, I think, this all-out assault on every piece of information that comes out of Gaza. And I think the reason why that's changed is that the scale has changed. We're seeing a level of destruction being waged by Israel, which is simply not 
comparable with anything that's happened before. And you have this language being used quite openly by the IDF of we're going for damage, not precision. So when you have a large-scale aerial aerial bombardment, you know you are going to kill very, very many civilians, and you want to do it with strong support from Western governments. Well, of course you have to cast doubt on the numbers which are coming out of Gaza, because that's part and parcel of the project of delegitimization and dehumanization of Palestinian life. Um, they're human shields, they're terrorists, even when they die, they're not really dead. Um, that kind of strategy has been a core tenet of Israeli Hasbara, the kind of PR strategy, which is often quite diffuse. It's not just from one central agency, and it's about flooding communications networks with Israeli talking points and delegitimizing and casting doubt on any aspect of the Palestinian narrative. So this um, sort of most recent turn where you're seeing President Biden himself saying, you know, the Hamas controlled, I've got no notion that the Palestinians are being honest with their numbers of deaths. That is a coup for Israeli Hasbara because it is the validation of a meme which has long been a part of Israeli talking points. And this meme is the conspiracy theory of Pallywood. So what Pallywood supposedly is, is the large scale and organized fabrication of videos and photographs, which show images of human rights abuses, human suffering, deaths, injuries, and that kind of thing. And so you'll often see it um, online, which is, you know, when you have people sharing videos, for instance, of a dead child being pulled from the rubble or um, abuses of human rights in the West Bank, you will have pro-Israeli accounts saying, oh, look, this is just Pallywood, you know, give them the Oscar, what a performance. And and the reason why I think um, there is such a such an effort to say this isn't happening. This is all fake. It's got something to do with the very particular way in which Israel justifies its violence against Palestinians. Israel has the monopoly on suffering. Israel is the victim, and the reason why Israel presents itself that way it's not simply to do with. Hamas rockets being fired on Israeli civilian areas. It's about connecting the state of Israel and the sort of soul of Israel to centuries of Jewish persecution. So it's about drawing legitimacy, the political cover for violence from having been a victim for so long. It's about having that monopoly on suffering. So of course, if there's another group that's suffering, if there's a group that is suffering because of the policies and activities of the world's only Jewish state, that is a fundamental threat to the way in which Israel justifies its ongoing expansion of settlements, justifies the ongoing bombardment of Gaza, justifies the system of apartheid, which governs the lives of Palestinians from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. And that's why it is so critical to them to cast doubt on anything that comes out of a Palestinian's mouth.
No, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I suppose just to reiterate, because I mean, I have been, I've had lots of people sort of really haranguing me because I've said that we should want verification of the claims that the IDF are making. They're saying, you're a conspiracy theorist. I keep getting called a Holocaust denier because I, I, I dare to, to doubt some of the claims they make without verification. And I suppose people could say to me, well, well, now you're just accepting what the Gaza Health Ministry is saying. Well, for one, we do normally report it as according to the Gaza Health Ministry. And I think as we've demonstrated, the historical record suggests that it does tend to be accurate what the Gaza Health Ministry says at least in terms of numbers of, of people who have died. And the other thing I was thinking about this is that when it comes to verification, obviously there are going to be some things where it's difficult to verify. It's difficult for a health agency to, to verify. So for example, when it comes to numbers of deaths, I can see why it might take a long time to identify people who are killed in an airstrike or in an attack. It might also be the case um, that a government or public bodies want to make sure there's time to inform friends and family before they go to the media and say, this is the list of names. So I, I think there, are, there will be many times in, in war where we will have to sort of accept a level of verification which seems reasonable at that period of time. I do think, though, in the case of the Israelis, people have been accepting things when verification would be easy but still has not been provided. And I have an example for you, which is this tweet from the Israeli Defense Forces, so the IDF. It says this, this would have been a photo of a lifeless pregnant woman next to her beheaded unborn baby cut out of her belly by Hamas terrorists. Due to this platform's guidelines, we can't show you that. And as you can see, this tweet, which has this horrific, horrific claim, I can't imagine, you know, an image more, more disgusting, more outrageous than what they're describing there. That's been viewed 13.5 million times. It's had 24,000 retweet. So that's gone really far and wide. And I suppose what I would say to that, and I tweeted this at the time, actually, and a lot of people attack me for it, is if this picture exists, there is no reason why you can't show that. Don't show it to us. Don't show it to the public, right? I, I'm not saying they should have tweeted the image, but you can show that to a specialist journalist at Reuters. You can show that to a specialist journalist at the Associated Press. There is no reason why they wouldn't see that. So when I see these claims, this photo exists, but you can't see it. Not me personally, the media can't see it, the media can't independently verify it. That, to me, raises questions. As I say, I don't think we have to be able to verify every claim which is made to report it when it comes to the number of deaths. You know, I, I'm not saying because Israel has only named 902 people, that means that 1,400 people didn't die, right? It might be that it's taking time to identify people or to, to tell family members. I don't know. But if you've got a state agency which is one of the participants in this war, You've got Hamas on one side, you've got the Israeli government on the other, and you've got lots of, you know, I don't think it's a war against Hamas, I think it's a war against the Palestinian people, but when it comes to, you know, the numbers being released, etc., um, you've got the Palestinian side, you've got the Israeli side, I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to scrutinize both of them. They do both have interests involved here. When you're fighting a physical war, you tend to also fight an information war. But sometimes you're going to have to accept that, you know, the, the standard of proof might have to be lowered somewhat because you're in a war. If it's a photo, though, if the claim being made by the IDF is we have this photo, but we're not going to show you because it, you know, it doesn't fit the, the guidelines of Twitter. Like Obviously, it doesn't fit the guidelines on Twitter. Show Reuters. Show Associated Press. And in situations like that, until easily providable verification has been provided, I won't believe it. And then, you know, to full circle, go back to Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden literally stood up in front of the world and said he'd seen photographs of beheaded babies. And it wasn't true right? So Western commentators, the standard of proof they are 
demanding of the Gazans and the standard of proof they are demanding of the Israelis. When it comes to the Gazans, they're picking thousands of people out of rubble and they're expecting the names of everyone. When it comes to the Israelis, the Israelis are telling them they've got a photograph, but we won't show you it, right? So it, it seems to me just an unbelievable level of inconsistency when it comes to the scrutiny put on the Israeli claims made and the Palestinian claims made. And I think that's incredibly unhealthy and it needs to change. Let's go to our next story. When Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukrainians had a right to resist. Yet when Palestinians resist their occupier, it's the occupier, not the occupied, that supposedly has the right to defend itself. Now, this is the completely morally inconsistent position coming out from the West right now. And it gets even worse. Look at these two clips from a White House spokesperson. The first is from this week. Being honest about the fact that there have been civilian casualties and that there likely will be more is being honest because that's what war is. It's brutal, it's ugly, it's messy. I've said that before. President also said that yesterday. Doesn't mean we have to like it. That was National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby basically telling journalists to grow up. War, war is dirty, war is messy, good people die, but that's life. What do you want me to do about it, right? Ah, this is war, people die. Now compare that to how Kirby talked about civilian deaths in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. So the killing of Ukrainian civilians brings John Kirby to tears. Fine, right? Got no problem with that. But when Palestinians are killed by a US ally, meh, these things happen. People die. It's war. Ash, it's a brutally stark contrast, isn't it? It is, and it's a similar contrast that we've seen with Ursula von der Leyen. When Putin targets civilian infrastructure, power, roads, railways, it's condemned as a war crime. When Israel announces that it's going to target civilian infrastructure and then does target that very civilian infrastructure, that's Israel's right to self-defense. So consistently, you've got this double standard at play where international law should be upheld to a T when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And by the way, I agree with it. International law should be upheld to a T in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it has absolutely no relevance or bearing when it comes to Israel's ongoing occupation, which is illegal under international law, or its present activities in Gaza, which are also, I believe, illegal under international law. So what explains this? What explains this total cognitive dissonance? One is that Israel has always been a sort of, you know, strategic outsourcing of American violence in the Middle East. That is the nature of uh, Israel's presence geopolitically when it comes to the United States. Neither Israel nor the United States, for that matter, are members, are signatories of the International Criminal Court. And Netanyahu even disputes its jurisdiction when it comes to Palestinian matters, 
Why? Because Netanyahu doesn't believe that Palestine is a sovereign state. So this idea that there's going to be any kind of, of universality of the standards which are applied when it comes to what states do, they're already out of the window when it comes to Israel. And I think that this is something which has been part and parcel of, of Israel's uh, position on these matters for decades, since the very beginnings of its inception in 1948 with the ethnic cleansing of, of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. But it's also been something which has been strengthened because of its relationship to the United States. And when, of course, the United States and the UK drove a coach and horses through international law, through our invasion of Iraq, that's also something which gives, you know, great comfort to other states who want to do the same kind of thing. There is absolutely no mechanism for international law to be upheld when it comes to Israel. The second thing to talk about, of course, here is racism. Palestinians are victims of racism. They're victims of anti-Arab racism, and they're victims of Islamophobia, regardless of whether or not a particular Palestinian is Muslim. And we see that in terms of the way in which their lives are so consistently devalued. The media coverage began on the 7th of October. Maybe occasionally you'll get a mention if there's a particularly bad flare-up of settler violence in the West Bank. But generally, in the West, there is a media blackout when it comes to the daily human rights abuses which are inflicted on Palestinians by the Israeli state and by Israeli settlers. And what that tells you is that Palestinian lives have very little value when it comes to Western media, the Western political view, unless or until it's coming into conflict with Israeli lives. And I think that that is, is pure racism. Um, it, it comes from seeing people who are Arab as less human than people who aren't Arab. And because the way in which Jewish people are imagined, now of course not all Jewish people are white, but of course Jewish people who one would describe as, as racially white have not been understood as racially white in other periods of history. But because generally, you know, Israel is sort of seen as as a as a outpost of America or an outpost of Europe. It's it's imagined as being part of a community of nations which are white dominated. It means that their lives get to matter they get to suffer. We get to see them as hu whole human beings in a way that Palestinians just, just don't get the opportunity. And I think, I think the other thing, as well as Palestinians being victims of racism in their own right, they're victims of the historic racism that Jewish people have faced for centuries. Because I don't think we'd be having any of this conversation in terms of Israel geopolitically or how we think about Israeli lives and how they're presented versus Palestinian lives, were it not for a legitimate collective guilt that European powers and many Americans feel over what happened during the Holocaust. The fact that so many Jewish people were turned away, they were turned away when they were seeking refuge in other European countries, turned away when they're seeking refuge in America, and that the full horror of what was being done was not fully accepted until it was too late and the camps were being liberated. I think there's an immense amount of collective guilt over that and, and an attempt to externalize that, to externalize the complicity of Western powers with anti-Semitism by putting it all 
on the Palestinians. So as I mentioned earlier, there is this idea about the monopoly of suffering, the legitimacy that is drawn from the monopoly of suffering. And so that's why you have to consistently talk down Palestinian suffering, because it delegitimizes Israel and its its disposition in relation to the Palestinians, but it also undermines, I think, this the particular way in which Western powers have dealt with their collective guilt over anti-Semitism. Back to the Russia-Ukraine comparison, I've seen some sort of journalists, you know, again, not unreasonably, sort of in the last few days or last couple of weeks, sort of say, oh, now all the focus is on um, Israel-Palestine. We need to make sure people remember that Ukraine is still being occupied. You know, it, may, it might look like the action is going on in, in, in Israel-Palestine, but Ukraine is still being occupied. Well, Israel has been occupying Palestine for 56 years, if you're sort of a liberal who believes in a two-state solution, or for 75 years, if you think the whole thing was a settler colonial project. So you've got sort of two different dates depending on your position. But everyone agrees, the UN agrees, that Palestine has been under occupation for 56 years. 56 years, right? So if if these journalists are worried, oh, people are turning their attention away from Ukraine, which has now been occupied for two years, 56 years. And and why do you think we see such extreme action? That's the other thing you hear. So, well, Ukrainians haven't d- done um, the same kind of attacking civilians. They haven't, right? But if they had been occupied for 56 years, I don't want to second guess what they might do, right? It's a different situation, especially as the Ukrainians are being backed by by the West. They've got, you know, the most highly technical weapon systems in the world. As I say, I I I I want them to beat Russia off their their territory. It's an illegal invasion. It's a war of aggression from Russia. But the Ukrainians are able to to fight back in this way that we see as very legitimate because they have the support of the West. The Palestinians have been under occupations for 56 years. They are, you know, well, they don't have any weapons sent from from the West. That's the, they, they can't even get water in their territory, right? And and then when they resist in a way as they have done, and I mean, obviously the targeting of of, of civilians of of, of of grandparents of young children always wrong, I think. Um, but this judgment of the entire movement, oh, it's very different from Ukraine because Ukraine um, is fighting military targets, whereas the Palestinians, some of them targeted civilians. I just think is is just so a historical. It's just offensive. Of course, this show and all our journalism at Navarra Media is only possible thanks to the support of people like you. Um, our funding model doesn't rely on advertising partners or venture capital. It relies on the monthly donations from our viewers. So if you can, please consider joining our regular supporters via our website. That's navaramedia.com slash support. And from just £1 a month, you can help us hit our target to get 5,000 new supporters and get ready for 2024. That link again is in the description box below. Let's go to our next story. Most of the British political class have been unflinching in their support for Israeli war crimes, but there have been some notable exceptions. Saeed Abbasi is a life peer and former chair of the Conservative Party. At the moment, what we don't have in Israel and Palestine between Hamas and Netanyahu is that either either party is a partner for peace. I want to read something to you. This quote, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support the bolstering of Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. That was Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2019, supporting Hamas, because he knows that as long as Hamas remains there, he can always argue that there is no partner for peace. During our lifetime, there have been two moments when peace could have happened. 
One was in the early 90s with the Oslo Accords, which were negotiated by Isaac Rabin and Yasser Arafat, and both of them were awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for that. Tragically, two years after those accords, a right-wing Israeli settler assassinated Iqsaq Rabin, and after the end of that, the peace process came to an end. The second moment came not so long ago in 2016, when John Kerry, as Secretary of State, put forward a peace proposal. That proposal was accepted by the Palestinian Authority, and it was rejected by Awon Netanyahu. So I think it's really important. I do believe, Gabriel, that there is an opportunity for peace. It's the only way that Israel will secure its long-term future. And I genuinely believe that what we should be saying to our politicians is that you've got to stop using language, which actually in the real world makes no sense. It sounds like Are it's you including your conservative I'm including the Conservatives and actually the leader here. of the opposition. In the real world, it sounds insensitive. It sounds like it's one-sided. It sounds hypocritical. And it sounds like you do not understand the depth of this issue. And it goes no way towards actually resolving the issue. All you do is embolden Netanyahu, a man who is mired in allegations of corruption, who actually in his cabinet has a minister who has been convicted of terrorism, another minister who is a self-confessed fascist, and who are governing on the basis of a coalition agreement which denies the very right of the Palestinian state to exist. Finally, a senior politician who dares to admit right, that the history of, of the Israeli occupation of Palestine goes further back than the 7th of October. Right, All we're hearing from both Labour and the Conservatives, is that this all started on the 7th of October with this unprovoked terrorist attack, and therefore this is purely a situation where a state has the right to defend itself against terrorists, completely ignoring the fact that that state is occupying another state, and that also they completely blocked any possible chance for peace, um, thereby weakening the moderate Palestinians and and, and making the, the radicals the only option, right? It's Netanyahu who's admitted a bunch of times that he wanted to strengthen Hamas because he wanted to have, as the sort of representative of the Palestinians, people who were less interested in the peace process than Fatah, because that meant that he could just say, well, we're in this situation where it's not about negotiation anyway, it's about violence and we're the guys with the bigger army. Varsi isn't the only politician who's displayed bravery on this topic. The Scottish First Minister, Hamza Youssef, has been speaking out in favour of a ceasefire for a while now. And yesterday he gave this impressive answer when asked about Celtic fans waving Palestine flags. We are a democratic society. People can wave Israeli flags, Palestinian flags, Scottish flags, Union Jacks, all they want. Do you think it was a show of solidarity with the people Look, of Palestine? I'm not going to comment. Uh, of course, waving flags is a demonstration of solidarity. First Minister. No, of course, issues of flags being waved in this crisis. Really great answer. You know, if they'd asked Keir Starmer, if they'd asked Rishi, said, oh, I don't, I, it, would, it depends what kind of flags. People have to be very careful about what kind of flags they're waving. He just says, look, it's flags at a football match. There are a lot more serious issues going on now. I cannot be bothered with this, right? Smart. Obviously, he is someone who actually has um, parents-in-law in Gaza, so he can see what actually matters in this situation, unlike the politicians who are desperately trying to triangulate to, to, to make sure that they are seen as, as on the side of the, the good people versus the terrorist people and sort of making it this stupid, Manichaean sort of fight between good and evil George W. Bush star. Labour's Anas Sawa, so that's Yousaf's opposite number in Hollywood, has now also joined um, the First Minister in backing a ceasefire. And London Mayor Sadiq Khan released this video today. I joined the international community in calling for a ceasefire. It would stop the killing and would allow vital aid supplies to reach 
those who need it in Gaza. It would also allow the international community more time to prevent a protracted conflict in the region and further devastating loss of life. Khan has now been joined by Andy Burnham and other leaders in Greater Manchester in calling for a ceasefire. Um, Ash, I wanted to ask you something about this because putting together this section, it obviously stood out that Varsi, Yusuf and Khan are all of British Asian heritage. Um, and they are sort of, been, they've been leading the charge, I think, when it comes to to turning the the page on how British politicians talk about this. Is is that a coincidence or do you think that's that's relevant here? I think it's relevant, but that's not to say that because they're Asian, they've just suddenly woken up to the realities of what's going on in Gaza. In 2014, Baroness Varsi resigned from the Conservative government over its stance towards Israel and Palestine. She called it morally indefensible. Sadiq Khan, before he went into politics, he was a human rights lawyer. Um, many of the people that he defended um, you know, had some kind of connection to the Middle East. And Humza Youssef, of course, as we've discussed many times, his family members are currently trapped in Gaza. Um, and so I think that these are individuals who wouldn't have necessarily felt about the issue as strongly as they do were they not British Asian, if they didn't have that sense of solidarity with the Palestinians, which is often, I think, held quite dearly to the hearts of many people in the British Asian community, particularly if they're Muslim. But I think it's also been been a long standard part of their politics. I mean, you know, if you can't just reduce politics and values to identity, but I think these things play a role. I think what is more striking about what's happening in the Labour Party more generally is that the Labour Party is under immense pressure over this issue. As you will have read in the Cortado this morning, it's being reported by several Labour MPs that they are receiving more emails on this issue than they ever have from constituents complaining about Labour's stance. For some MPs, that means that they're receiving literally thousands of emails and phone calls. But even in M you know, even in seats where you don't have a particularly diverse electorate, some MPs are reporting hundreds of emails. And I think that there is a massive gap between where the political consensus has been and where the people are at. YouGov polling uh, from over a week ago showed that uh, 76% of respondents thought there probably or definitely should be a ceasefire. Now, that is absolutely not uh, where politicians have landed with this kind of fudge over a humanitarian pause. But that gulf between public opinion and Westminster means that the smarter politicians, of which Sadiq Khan is one, will want to be the first to move on it. They can smell when they're out of line with what the public think, and they'd rather not, you know, be a Johnny come lately, as Keir Starmer inevitably will. Yeah, we've got we've got one more story, sort of talking about the British media and, and its response to this. First of all, I do want to sort of inform our our audience about a story that's breaking, sort of as we're as we're live, and which is that the the Israeli military are saying that they are basically about to to begin a, a ground incursion into Gaza. Um, so this is from uh, an Israeli military spokesman, Daniel Hagari. Um, in recent hours, we have increased the attacks in Gaza. The Air Force widely attacks underground targets and terrorist infrastructure very significantly. In continuation of the offensive activity we carried out in the last few days, the ground forces are expanding the ground activity this evening. Um, and he says, 
Um, the IDF are working powerfully in all dimensions to achieve their goals. Now, you might also have seen, um, this was sort of announced just before we went live, um, Reuters are um, reporting that all mobile connections have gone down in Gaza. So you are looking at this incredibly terrifying situation where if you are in Gaza, not only are you now, I mean, it's, it seems as if the air raids are also in increasing, airstrikes are increasing. The Israelis are planning, they're basically announcing that they're about to go in on a ground invasion. And as we talked about on previous shows, this is going to be lots and lots of soldiers who have been told by their politicians that they're going up against animals who just have some crazy bloodlust, right? I don't think these are going to be soldiers who have much interest in respecting human rights law. And at the same time, your only connection to the outside world has just been blocked off. So I just cannot imagine the terror in in Gaza right now. Um, Ash, I think, you know, one reason potentially why this is happening now, we've been talking over the past, you know, few days about will they or won't they go for this ground invasion. Now, you know, generally we've sort of settled on they will because they've said they would and it would be sort of to, 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 to lose face if they didn't. Um, the arguments against doing ground invasion is because it's very unclear what they want to achieve. But I would imagine the reason they're going now is because the calls for a ceasefire are actually becoming quite strong. And obviously they want to go in before they are pressured into a ceasefire. They want to, you know, do as much damage as they possibly can in the air, on the ground, as much as possible. They want to destroy as much of Gaza as possible before they feel international pressure saying, guys, you need to slow down. I mean, uh, do you agree that that's probably what's going on here? I mean, we should probably talk about the kinds of pressure that Netanyahu is under. By pressure, I'm obviously not talking about how does he feel emotionally. I'm talking about the sort of political forces that are working on him. So one is the international community. We've already seen the fact that strength of public opinion in Britain, in the EU, and in America has led the position to shift from absolutely no ceasefire, do whatever you've got to do towards this sort of, you know, neither one thing nor the other, the humanitarian pause. Now, in terms of Palestinian lives, that's not a drastic change, but in terms of rhetoric and positioning, it is really far away from where the EU, from where the United States and from where Britain was earlier in October. And I think that is purely to do with the strength of public opinion. I think the second kind of pressure that Netanyahu is facing is some real unpopularity. So, of course, his government had been facing protests this year because of the Supreme Court and because of what many Israelis feel is a catastrophic mishandling over both Israeli security and hostage negotiations, he is coming under pressure domestically. And then the third kind of pressure that Netanyahu is under is when it comes to the balance of power in terms of his cabinet and the army. So we've seen, again, from relatively early on in October, that the army was really raring to go with the ground invasion. It didn't really matter that there wasn't much of a plan. It really matter that there weren't some solid strategic objectives uh, that could be you know, ag agreed and, and um, you know, wargamed and implemented. They just really wanted to go for it. And you have a deeply radicalized far-right cabinet. So these are all the kinds of things which are sort of, um, you know, bearing down on Netanyahu. And when you, you see the sort of wavering, slightly, support of the international community for further bloodshed, and internally, 
Netanyahu's got to keep this war machine going, otherwise he's got to face the music over his handling of the security situation and of the hostages crisis. Those are things which then really start to, you know, put the 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 ball in the court of of the army. Um, they want a ground invasion. They've been wanting it for a really long time, and the incentives are aligning, have been aligning for Netanyahu to to press the big red button there. Um, What's being reported out of Gaza in the last hour or two is that communications have gone down. Aerial bombardment uh, has been the heaviest since the beginning uh, of the war. And I think that what what this will mean for the many, many thousands of Palestinians who are still in the north and the Palestinians who have been crowded into the south without any guarantee of safety, I think I think it's utterly catastrophic. As I say, I just can't imagine the the terror it must involve living in in Gaza right now. I know the the IDF have sort of said we're we're coming in, so now is the time to leave northern Gaza and go to the south. But as you saw at the start of this show, people who are moving to the south past the line that the Israelis have told them, you know, they will be safer. Our entire families are getting killed because their houses are getting flattened. Right, so there there is nowhere safe in Gaza, and now there is also no communications, no connections in Gaza. Um, we will you know, be coming back to this, of course, on, on on Monday. I don't want to speculate too much about what, what we might be about to see. Let's go to our final story. The British media's coverage of Israel-Palestine is generally biased, often infuriatingly so. Sometimes, though, it tips into the surreal. The debate you're about to see is between James Schneider, he's a former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn, who is, it happens, Jewish, um, and a man called David Menzer, who is the former director of Labour Friends of Israel. 76% of people in this country want to see a ceasefire now. And that's because that's the common sense position. Because most people know that you don't respond to the unjustifiable killing of one group of children by killing a whole load more children. It doesn't make any sense. So what we should be doing, what we need from our politicians, which we don't have because they're in lockstep in support of uh, the Israeli bombing campaign at the moment, is to call for a ceasefire. Because Britain not only provides diplomatic support for Israel, but we also help arm Israel. So we are complicit in the crimes which are taking place, and therefore we have an outsized role in the ability to try to bring about peace. The tricky position right here is is sitting in your studio, and his name is... Uh, James. James is, of course, a pound shop uh, academic who underwrote, who sustained, who was the right-hand man of Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, who uh, certainly failed in his role as being leader of the Labour Party, uh, you know, giving the Labour Party its worst possible election result since the 1930s. But of course, he also pushed me and my family, me and my family out of the Labour Party, where I was a member for the last 20 years or so. And he pushed me and my family over to live in Israel. That's what anti-Semitism does in the UK. Uh, And James endorsed it. James, of course, is not the most uh, trustworthy of people because he was, of course, before being... um, vaguely associated with the Labour Party, leading momentum. But of course, before that, he was president of the Lib Dem Society. And of course, he's been writing for the Conservative Home newspaper. So James is a tin pot student 
uh, politician that really should stay in the student union. This is about big boy politics. Here. Okay, well, this well, is about real yeah, lives. A, all right, David. No, no, I, I hear you. There's a, there's a lot in yeah, there. Very, we very learned important. a lot about James's this CV as well here. Didn't know about the conservative well. home bit. But well, it's the, not true. The, 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 pound, the pound shop academic stuff. I mean, you're not really it, the, the man to be talking about this is David's point. Uh, well, I think he's still going. Um, I, I mean, most of what he said is factually inaccurate, but I'm, I'm not really going to... This isn't about me. No, it's a serious topic, so in a way we shouldn't laugh, but that line, I think he's still going, did, did get me, I have to say. And I do think, you know, again, I couldn't but find it somewhat entertaining to see that man completely lose it in such a bizarre way. Um, but the serious point, you know, James Schneider says, it's never a good response to innocent killed children being killed to, to kill more innocent children, right? That shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. And then the guy in response just reads out a list of, I mean, it seems like a bunch of them weren't even true about James Schneider, just incredibly rude stuff. Doesn't engage with the point at all, right? Not one bit. I also thought it was odd, you know, you've got this, this B-roll of Jeremy Corbyn sort of doing the doing little dances and playing football and the guy is saying this is the reason why i had to move to israel because jeremy corbyn was so anti-semitic like this is this guy is living on us in, in a strange world in a strange world where he thinks that's an appropriate way to behave on television um and when he thought jeremy corbyn was so so scary that he moved to israel right i mean he was director of labor friends of israel so presumably um he he, he already had some warmth towards the country um let's see what happened next I'm not here to talk about myself if we want to have But some... do you represent a view, the momentum view, the Corbyn view? I think I that's overarching. The position that I represent is Us. what 76% of people in the UK, view. according to YouGov Pulseport, we want a ceasefire now. That is the common sense position. It, in my view, is the only morally plausible position. And we have a role. Everybody in this country actually has a role in helping bring about peace because... Our government is a major supporter of Israel, and we can pressure our politicians, and if they change course, that can have a material effect in the field. That can help save lives. So I'm not here talking for anybody. I'm just saying that this is the case. The reason why the overwhelming majority of people want a ceasefire is because it is the common sense right thing to do, and our political class is not offering it to us at all, neither the Conservative Party nor Keir Starmer's Labour. OK. Um, thank you the to David. Do you want to get a fi final word in, David? Yeah, the overwhelming majority of the British people rejected Corbyn's approach to international policy because this is a terrorist organisation which cannot be appeased as James suggests, it needs to be defeated because if it's not defeated here, it will take root on the streets of London. We already saw 100,000 people marching from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. That means more than 100,000. I was there. Five people. And, that, it, that and, and it wasn't frightening at all. Five people here in Israel. James, you've had your turn. Now it's my chance. It's time to expose your hypocrisy. It's time to expose your love of Jew haters. And it's time to put an end to Hamas. And all right-thinking people, all genuine people, would agree with that notion. Okay. While, of course, protecting the lives of hostages and, of course, of ordinary Palestinian people. All right, that, 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 that last comment may well be seen as a yellow card, I think, from James. I mean, your, your love of Jew haters, I think you would wish to refute that unequivocally. Of, I mean, yeah, uh, it's absurd. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting into his ridiculous ad hominem stuff, which is uh, offensive, false, idiotic. 
And most importantly, we are talking about a conflict where people are dying. I don't care if this bloke doesn't like me. I don't care you if I like him. Evil, it's, it's in you support evil Hamas. I do I, not. And right-thinking people. Okay, I obviously don't support evil Hamas. Evil. If if, if, right. if he were listening evil to what Hamas, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying that women rapers. Child beheaders, yes, evil Hamas, James. You support them. No, I, I don't. Anyway, I'll just I let him run out of steam, right. and then and then maybe we can return me, to some some sanity. Because what we're talking about right here, behind I'll me, let, you know. not behind you, and your tin pot ideas. Not necessarily the most important thing to say there, but if you saw the ticker there, said red rage, which I think was supposed to apply to sort of the the, the members of the Labour Party who were annoyed at Keir Starmer for not for not calling for a ceasefire, and then you got. This man who was just incredibly aggressive, every word he spoke, um, getting redder and redder and redder. I'm not exactly sure that that's what the producers meant when they sort of had Red Rage as their subtitle for their, for their section. I don't think that guy did himself any favours with that performance, but he's not just some randomer, right? He was the director of Labour Friends of Israel, and that's not a fringe organisation. So four members of the Shadow Cabinet currently serve as its vice chairs. They are Peter Kyle, Pat McFadden, Jonathan Reynolds and Rachel Reeves. And Keir Starmer himself is listed as one of their parliamentary supporters. So he was a director of a very significant organisation within, within the Labour Party. He's talking about the big boys are back. The big boys are back in charge of Labour. Is that how the big boys should be talking about a very dire moment in, in international politics? I mean, look, the first thing to point out is that I thought that James did admirably under just a tidal wave of nonsense. And while, of course, you know, there is something absurd and ridiculous about how this individual, David Mensah, conducted himself, um, it can't be easy to be a Jewish man, as James is, and being accused of supporting women raping evil Hamas, being, you know, accused of Jew hate. I mean, all of those things are really ugly accusations but they must be i think you know quite painful and difficult if if you're having to deal with them and you're on live tv and you're also jewish so i mean yeah props to him i mean in terms of 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 david menzer i kind of can't decide whether to feel sorry for him or simply laugh at him and i think i sort of sit in the middle and the reason why i say i feel a bit sorry for him is because this man is clearly both a victim and a perpetrator of a media campaign of paranoia, lies, and hysteria. Because if you've genuinely moved to Israel because of Jeremy Corbyn, that is absurd. Because we've talked about, you know, maybe these things could have been handled differently within the party, but ultimately there was absolutely nothing that happened during that time period to Jewish people in this country because of Jeremy Corbyn that would have justified fleeing for your life. I'm sorry, that's just a complete fantasy. Whereas what was actually happening during that time in terms of government policy targeting people of colour, like the Windrush crisis, well, that was a form of state racism that didn't take up anywhere near the same bandwidth when it came to contesting a general election. So it was like a carnival hall of mirrors, things that were very big, seemed very small, and things which weren't actually that big, which weren't 
actually impacting people's lives in that sort of day-to-day, you know, oppressive way that the hostile environment was, these things appeared massive and looming out of all proportion. And if you sincerely believed those things, for example, there was one gentleman who popped up on LBC to accuse Jeremy Corbyn of wanting to reopen Auschwitz. If you sincerely believed those things, well, life must be very difficult for you. Life must be very scary for you. Because if I sincerely believed uh, that my community was uh, on the brink of being marched to the death camps, I would feel um, dreadful. So in a way, I feel sorry for people who who sincerely believe that, but not entirely sorry. Like you said, this man was director of Labour Friends of Israel. It's a very influential organization within the Labour Party. And so people who occupy that role within public life, uh, they should be held to higher standards in terms of truthfulness and reason and truthfulness and all capacity for reason clearly went out the window during that television segment. I think that's a fair summary that he, he wasn't meeting any standards of truthfulness or reason um, in those interventions. And I, I totally agree with you. I think James Schneider sort of handled that, you know, in such an impressive way. Um, Jowda Fox, just to read one more super chat. Thanks for coverage. I pray for my family in Gaza, free Palestine. All our solidarity to you, um, Jowda, for, for, and your family in Gaza. I can't imagine how stressful that must be. Of course, anyone else um, watching this, um, either in Gaza or with family in Gaza, all of our solidarity to you. We will continue covering this story. Um, thank you all for watching. Um, I imagine many of you will be um, out on the streets demonstrating tomorrow um, in favor of a immediate ceasefire. So solidarity to everyone out there who will be marching. Um, Ash, for now, thank you for joining me tonight. Um, I do briefly want to ask um, you to tell us about this Sunday's downstream. Okay, if I've got my downstream schedule right, uh, it will be an interview between myself and Vincent Bevins about his new book, If We Burn. Vincent Bevins is a journalist. He's written another book called The Jakarta Method, which was about the anti-communist repression of the Cold War. And this book, really, it's about the protest movements of the 2010s up to 2020. So looking at the Arab Spring, looking at Sao Paulo, looking at Ukraine and Hong Kong as well. And it's a real analysis of what kind of strategy succeeds and what kind of strategy fails. So if you're interested in the art of protest movements. This is, I think, the interview for you. Mm, Vincent's first book was really, really incredible. So I can't wait to read the second and listen to that interview. That's this Sunday um, on our channel at 6pm. We'll be back on Monday. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.